real quick before we get going, we ended up dividing the championship into two episodes. It will become clear after the second episode why we divided it into two. Basically, it went on for a really long time. Um, so yeah, I'm just telling this because I'm not trying to be overly dramatic or draw things out or be cheeky. It just makes more sense to divide into two episodes. So yeah, here's this week's episode, and it will conclude next week. Same lineup, same curator, just divided into two weeks. Enjoy. Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. This week's episode concludes the Tournament of Champions and Season 1 of Guest of the Year, and our setless curator is David Gans. David is a musician, songwriter, and music journalist. He hosts the syndicated radio show, The Grateful Dead Hour, which is on episode 1,826, and Tales from the Golden Road, alongside Gary Lambert, on Sirius XM. David's new book, Improvised Lives, Grateful Dead, 1972-1985, which features photographs and stories, is available now, and you can order it via the link in the show notes. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. This looks like fun. Thanks for being here. Murph wasn't able to make it tonight, so we've got Jeremy, Stephen, Guerin vying for the Guest of the Year crown, and with it, the Listen to the River St. Louis 71, 72, 73, 20 CD box set from Dead.net. Second place will receive Dave's Picks 47, which is 12.979, and third place will receive an REI gift card for $50. The format for today's competition is as follows: I'll play three songs from David's set list and two contestants with the lowest score, that is the least number of years off, after the three songs, will continue on to the finals, where their scores will reset to zero, and they will hear an additional three songs to decide who's champion. All right, without further ado, The Grateful Dead. That was a dark star into a brief snippet of El Paso at Berkeley Community Theater on August 21st, 1972. David, great choice. Why did you choose that song? Well, I wanted to choose different things from different years. And I, I, I'm not exactly, you know, I, I didn't, I don't think 
when I got this assignment, I don't think that it was uh, really intending to like see if you can deceive these people into choosing the wrong year. I just thought it would be cool to play something really interesting from a given period of time. And 72 being the sort of birth of my deadheaddom, you know, Berkeley Community Theater, the, this show that we excerpted was my second Grateful Dead show. And I watched it from the fourth row of the Berkeley Community Theater. And it was what you might call a transformative experience. And that cool thing that happened a couple of times in that period, there's a very famous one in the Sunshine Daydream movie and CDs on 827-72. They're playing this dark star out there, and Jerry starts playing Morning Dew. And then Bob starts playing El Paso. And there, somebody just on Twitter like two weeks ago just posted something like, you know, the greatest fucking buzzkill in the history of the Grateful Dead, you know, and they played a, a link to that moment. I thought, well, no, <laughs> it was it definitely a road not taken, you know, but it, I knew that there was this other one from just a few days earlier that I had seen. I had no freaking idea what a anomalous or interesting thing it was, you know. El Paso coming out of Dark Star. I didn't freaking know what was going on in Dark Star, you know. I came to this band for the songs and the singing and the arrangements and stuff, and it took me a couple of years to figure out what was going on in the conversation in between, right? So it was oh, the whole thing was kind of novel to me, but coming back to it, watching and, and listening to the Grateful Dead doing unexpected things sort of became the 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 unexpected became the norm. Do you think that was in jest going to El Paso? I well, Bob had had it, no. I don't think it was in jest. I think it was certainly in the spirit of um, the creative non sequitur. The Grateful Dead did that. There were other times Bobby would drop into um, uh, me and my uncle in the middle of other one jams, you know, in like nineteen seventy one and stuff. And you know, these guys were all about those interesting juxtapositions. So why the hell not go deep into some, you know, undersea cavern with a with an improvisation and then, you know, dance out of it on the back of a horse? Why the hell not? So all three of these guys got 1972. Nice work, everyone. Yeah, I didn't think it was a tough call, kid. <laughs> Garen is 50 from Brooklyn. He won episodes 26 and 27. Garen, how did you figure that one out? Well, there's sort of like an unmistakable swing to that year. Um, I mean, it has a lot to do with, you know, Billy was just on fire. I feel like he was just, you know, all over the place. And there's also, I was noticing just in that one clip, the equality in the um, improvisation, like they were really equal participants in that conversation. Um, put an untrained ear on that. And I think someone might think, have a hard time discerning exactly who's, you know, supposed to be soloing, um, quote unquote. And then when they went into El Paso, I actually thought for a minute, oh, is this the Creamery? Um, I didn't I didn't know that they had done that. And that's actually the same month, isn't it, David? Yeah, it was just uh, a week earlier. August of, like yeah. Six days earlier. But um, that was my reasoning, I would say. Excellent. Steve, three-peated to end season one, 28 through 30. He is 51 from Lincoln, Nebraska. Steve, uh, you sent your 72 in quite quickly. What gave it away? I'm familiar with those, not as familiar as David is, but uh, those those Berkeley shows are some of my favorites. Uh, they were some of the first decent uh, sounding bootlegs that I had. 
And while I didn't uh, immediately peg it as those specific shows, that sound is pretty unmistakable with Alligator and everything. And the swing, like Karen mentioned, that's that's a thing. Jeremy also guessed 72. Nice poll, Jeremy. Jeremy is 24 from Palo Alto. He won episodes 20 and 21. Jeremy, what'd you hear there? Um, I think it was like the piano, the certain piano that Keith is playing sounds 72 to me. I don't know how to describe it much more than that. It's kind of like a muted sound. It's not super bright. Um, and then also Jerry's uh, guitar, the, the Strat that he's playing. I, I could recognize the tone. And then I was kind of wavering between 72 and 73. But then when it went into... Uh, uh, El Paso. I was like, oh, this has to be the the Vinita, Oregon Sunshine Daydream show because I knew they did that there, but it wasn't. I, I I don't know how many times they did Dark Star to El Paso, but I knew they did it that one show in 72. So that was kind of the what cemented 72 for me. So if I had left off the segue there, would that, you, it might have been a little less obvious? A little bit less, yeah, but I, I think I still would have gone with 72. I, I, you guys are right, though. This There, there was a, a really, really intense democracy in their playing in those days the real they were that phil said in his book he they wanted to be the fingers on a hand and they were locked in together and they were really listening it was amazing and you're also right about the piano the, a lot of the late 71 stuff they're still figuring out how to i think those are helping still pickups or the early countrymen pickups and they had a hard time interfacing them with the pa so there's a lot of tapes from late 71 that have like distortion and I think going into 72. So you got, they had it sorted by then. That's another good uh, observation. And, and Keith was just so involved. There was so much, as you say, the conversation was thick and intense and very democratic. It's amazing to me how provocative he is to that early in his membership in the band. You know, he's just like, he's just challenging Jerry all over the place and he's not, Demure. Lovely. Well, everyone got it. So everyone has zero points. So everyone's in the same situation going into uh, David's second pick, which we can hear now. Oh, that was great. That was a little tougher, huh? 
<laughs> it was music to my ears. Okay. It was Saint of Circumstance at Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York on November 2nd, 1979. Um, that was... The wildest same circumstances I've ever heard. Yeah, tell us about that one. It's one of those um, sort of. It's a hallmark of that season. The whole fall of '79, I felt like uh, Brent had, you know, integrated himself into the conversation. Yeah, and he changed the conversation. We were just talking about about Keith Godshow in in his conversation with the Grateful Dead. Brent Midland was a very different human being and a very different musician. And his integration into the band changed a lot of things. And that was one of the songs that sort of surprisingly opened up to, to my ear in the fall. I started listening to stuff. A friend of mine, Thomas Donaldson, was like for, for, for a couple of years was saying, hey, man, you got to listen to this, play it on the radio. And I think it was 11679. I've lost track of which exact day, but it's right in this same stretch of the same tour. And he was absolutely right. I listened to this thing, and the Saint of Circumstance came along and just exploded into this jam in the late going. And then I realized there were several of those along the way. So there were places in the the musical discourse where Brent was stepping up and taking charge a little bit, or was or was very much you know an equal conversant, discussant, equal participant. Were there other songs you feel like he maybe? backed off a bit before or do you think he was equally conversant in the whole I catalog say backed off a bit i think no i i think he he learned the book well i mean, he's a very you know he's a professional musician and he and he did a good job on it i think he was just careful to you know get make himself comfortable and make them comfortable with him and then he started stepping out a little bit but you know this we're listening to this. His first gig was April 22nd, 1979. It's May, June, July, August, September, October, November. Seven months and change later, or six months and change later. And uh, he's he's found his way in in several places. You could say that again. Wow. Steve got it, 1979. He's the only one who got it. How'd you figure that out? Well, I think I mentioned it in one of the previous shows. My favorite second set ever is 1226.79. And so I really like that sound. And I, I kind of picked up on that. I, uh, I think Garcia was already pay, was playing Tiger by this time. And uh, Brent's keyboard tone and Phil's bass tone is pretty distinct in this tour, in this era of the band. And I just, I love um brent's first that winter tour fall winter tour tours of 79 are just it's just outrageous kind of in the same way keith's first tours were in in 71 i I just love the energy it's like the band it's like they got a new toy and i hadn't heard this same the circumstance jam before at first I, i my initial thought was god are they like playing i thought maybe it was in the middle of a playing in the band jam or something and they were just kind of working out the saint jam Cause it was just that loose, you know, but it was just, it was the tone that led me to 79. It's fascinating to me that you're tracking these by which guitar Jerry was playing. I, I, that is like one of, I've listened to the notes that he plays and haven't paid that much attention to which guitars, which except that I formed a pretty negative opinion of the Travis Bean for a while there. I thought it was kind of shrill <laughs> sounding compared to Jerry's other instruments. Agreed. But it, but it's I just think it's fascinating that that you can discern which guitar from from the the tone. 
I want to add something else though. Uh, in I interviewed a lot of musicians for uh, um, a book project that's still sort of on a some on a burn somewhere in the middle burner somewhere. But I used a lot of it for various other things, including "This Is All a Dream We Dreamed," an oral history of the Grateful Dead. And Rob Eaton, currently the rhythm guitarist of the Dark Star Orchestra, made a really really important observation when Brent joined the band. Remember. Jerry said they were hungry for color, that they that Keith's piano playing was very uh, percussion and what he told me in 81 was an all-percussion band, right? Which is an exaggeration, but made his point. So here comes Brent with all this sustain, with an organ and synth pads and stuff. As Rob Eaton pointed out, that caused Bob Weir to change his playing style significantly. To, to accommodate, you know, to take advantage of and leave room for what Brent was bringing in. And also, you know, concurrent with that or a little bit ahead of that was Mickey Hart rejoining the band and pu pushing the, the songbook in the direction of more groove-oriented stuff and less freeform improvisational stuff. You know, and that's where we... And, and when Brent came in, that was another little hinge in the repertoire you know, we started hearing C.C. Ryder when I would much rather have heard Black-Throated Wind or some other original in that spot, right? But Brent played a B3 and Bobby was Mr. Blues Man, so we got C.C. Ryder and stuff. But, you know, the the, uh, the repertoire changed in certain ways and the the sonic tapestry changed in significant ways when Brent joined the band. So people, even at the time, preferred Black-Throated Wind to C.C. Ryder? I wasn't the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. So uh, Steve hears the guitar, as does Garen. Jeremy hears the drums. He's our resident drum expert on Guest of the Year. What was going on in the drums there, Jeremy? And you guessed 1981, only two years off. What'd you hear? Um, well, I just, I'll start by saying that was like the craziest snippet I've heard on the show on all my appearances. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most like frantic. And, and that's not really a song that I've spent a lot of time listening to. So I, I had no idea what song it really was. Um, the drumming was like super frantic and energetic and crazy. And like, um, so I figured it was kind of not, not like mid eighties. I don't know. I, I figured it was a little earlier. Like they were still a bit younger. Um, the keyboard tone, like that kind of the electric piano that he's playing reminded me more of like 80, 81, 82, I guess, you know, 79 is pretty similar, but, and then the, something about the bass tone reminded me of like the, a little bit later, like at like 82 or 83. It's like a kind of like this thick, uh, like the mids and maybe the highs are kind of a little bit uh, louder on on his bass tone. And so that's why I thought 81 would be a safe guess because I thought that it very well could could have been a year or two later or could have been 80 or I did 79, didn't even really occur to me. But um, that was like kind of a, a weird recording to just get, you know, to get plopped in the middle of. And it's it's it was hard to orient myself there mission accomplished <laughs> garen guess 1982 yeah why 82 again i guess you know a lot of those tones sort of carried over from like 79 through through i guess you know 83 or so i definitely heard tiger um i just thought brent sounded like everyone's talking about way too integrated into the band and way too not carefree but just sort of like wild um to be that early in his tenure you know and so i sort of ruled that out and it also had this like 
careening sort of reckless quality where you weren't sure if it was going to land where they intended. And I sort of thought, you know, the deeper they got into the mid eighties, more and more of that kind of stuff was happening. So I went on the outer edge a little too far. Do you feel the same way about the Travis Bean as Steve and David? I guess I just associate it so specifically with like 76, 77. It's just sort of like, that's the sound of that time period. So it's almost like it's so integrated into the aesthetic. I don't even analyze it as like an individual guitar tone almost, if you know what I mean. So that's a really good point. And I certainly don't allow it to foul my appreciation of 76 and 77. I don't sit there thinking, God damn it. If only he was playing a <laughs> guitar that was made out of wood. I will say that is one of my favorite, might be my favorite tone actually of his, the Travis Bean. 76 is like, my, my, might be my favorite year. Wow. Uh, maybe second to like, maybe tied with like Alligator. But yeah, I, I for one really love it. It just takes all kinds, I guess. A lot of different takes on Guest of the Year. That's why it works. Well, Steve has zero points. Jeremy has two and Garen has three. So lowest two point totals after this next song go on to the finals, which is a fresh slate of three songs. Everyone scores reset, and that's the championship. Now that that convoluted scoring system recap is out of the way, we can continue on to the third song. Let's hear it. Greek Theater in Berkeley, backed in Berkeley on June 15th, 1985. Brilliant pick, David. What were you thinking with that one? I just always loved that transition. They just, that, I, 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 I think I was there live. I'm pretty sure I was there. And that just, they, they finished the song and just immediately started this little motif that led directly into... Uh, you know, give me some loving, and it's just a, a sweet moment of, of almost composed quality. You know, it, everybody knew exactly what was going on, and they all played with it. Jerry did some variations and stuff, you know, and the 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 exact moment of launching into uh, 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 give me some loving was a little, you know, it stopped slightly abruptly, but it was only a brief moment, and then they launched right into it, you know. 
It was a, a lovely weekend. 85 is a tough time. Jerry's voice sounds really strained, a lot of it, you know, the various um, things are starting to catch up with him along the way, you know, and, and he wasn't the only one with issues. So the music sometimes had a kind of a disjointed and urgent quality to it, you know, that I I missed the the more relaxed times, you know. The nineteen seventy three shows, nobody was in a hurry to go anywhere and ever. And those shows went on forever. And these things became more concise and a little more hurried in the in the early eighties in a way that I found um unfortunate. But moments like that were fucking awesome. Were they less in a hurry after Jerry came back from the coma, you think? Yeah, I yeah. Well, I everything everybody kind of got healthy, you know, during that time. I think in a lot of ways, and I think there was a sort of a renewed sense of mutual uh, support in the band. But you know, they they had a a bunch of music that they'd been playing for several years, and and they chose this moment to you know organize a recording session and do it in a way that you know, approximated their live performance, you know, and they'd kind of been warming up to doing that for a few months since Jerry came back from this thing. So, yeah, they were playing with a renewed sense of, of like, health, basically, sort of collective mental, spiritual, and physical health. Um, well, your book, Improvised Lives, covers from 72 to 85. Why did you choose 85 as the last year to cover in that book? Because that's when I stopped taking photos. So uh, I I was a, a I always had a camera when I was a kid I always wanted to be a photographer you know and I I, I was a music journalist from 1976 to 1986 I wrote for music magazines I started out at a magazine called BAM in the Bay Area it was a free weekly it was ad supported and I became their Grateful Dead correspondent in a funny way I did a little column on what was going on in the Grateful Dead world and I started interviewing band members. For, for that publication. So it was kind of the beginning of my journalism career uh, overlapped with my beginning to uh, penetrate the Grateful Dead world, you know, in various ways. Uh, but I, I, and I, I took my camera. I was a, I, a music journalist for about those 10 years. And I wound up writing for a subsidiary of Rolling Stone called Record from 81 to 86. And I worked for Mix Magazine and I freelanced for a lot of other places. I even did stuff like going on a tour bus with Ozzy Osbourne overnight to do an article about him. And I took photos of Ozzy on that trip and sold those photos, too. So I was a freelance music journalist who loved the Grateful Dead more than anything else. But I would go cover other stuff. And I sold photos along with the articles, you know, because I would take pictures and I was a decent photographer and a pretty good writer. So my freelance career included doing both of those things. Um, a bunch of incredibly fortunate accidents led to my writing a book about the Grateful Dead, which came out in 1985, playing in the band, which I'd collaborated with Peter Simon. And that led to my becoming a guest on the Grateful uh, on the K Fog Deadhead Hour in San Francisco in February of 85. And that led to my becoming a regular contributor to the program because I had a lot of tapes and I had some knowledge of this stuff and I had access to the band. And they even gave me access to the vaults, oddly enough. 
and and so I started doing radio more, and I basically my music journalism kind of um, went by the wayside as I got more and more into doing Grateful Dead stuff, and the radio show didn't immediately become a source of income, but it wound up being one with my never having made a plan to do so. Other stations started calling and asking if they could carry the show. So it became a syndicated program without my ever having formed the intention of doing that. The downside of that was that uh, producing a weekly radio show in 1985 took a lot of um, time. Spent a lot of time hunched over two-track uh, open reel decks and, and uh, editing blocks and various other things. So a lot of my other stuff, my music journalism, I kind of stopped being a freelance music journalist and got to be more being a Grateful Dead radio guy. And so my photography kind of dried up. And also I just, my relationship with the band changed when I started doing the radio show. I was able to go to fewer shows. I couldn't travel out of town to go see shows because I had to be home for you know three or four days a week to work on the show. So I put my camera away. It wasn't necessary to my, my livelihood at that point because I was doing Grateful Dead radio and other related stuff. I didn't start taking pictures again until digital cameras appeared in the early aughts or whatever. And I've, I have resumed my obsessive love of taking pictures and I take hundreds of pictures every week of all kinds of different things. Um, but so the book, it made sense for the book to span, to, to cover the span of my taking pictures of the Grateful Dead. I took photos at the Berkeley community theater, probably the night of the clip that we heard. Cause I, I, I went to four shows and I took photos from two different angles. I don't remember which show I had my camera at, but I, um, I, I I started photographing there. So the first chapter in the book is the BCT. And the last photo in the book is a picture of Mickey Hart on his ranch in 1985 when I went there to collect material for the Deadhead Hour, which had become my new gig. So that was the that's the time boundary of the body of photos. And also after that time the story the quality and quantity of the story changed in a lot of ways so it was a good spot to end the tale makes a lot of sense yeah and that link is in the uh show notes so 1985 the wheel everyone got it which means jeremy and steve go on to the finals because jeremy was off by one fewer years than garen but we'll start with garen garen how'd you uh pull that one it's interesting that became a somewhat um, repeated transition and I never quite understood what the connection was between those two songs until one day I was listening to I think it's a 70s Fox Theater 77 and you know how they used to start the wheel the older versions of wheel it was like the drums like yeah dun, 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 dun. yeah dun, 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 dun. and then, and then yeah. the band comes in i said oh there's there's the that's what's going on there that's why they think the songs should be together so um that was an interesting revelation um but in terms of guessing 85 um like a lot of my sort of forensic thinking with this stuff um it starts with tones for me and there's a very distinct uh brent tone in 85 that's just he just he played that keyboard a lot, but the speed threw me off a little bit. It's very brisk. And so I thought maybe because like in like 83, they were playing everything super fast and um, it, things gradually slowed down a little bit into the mid 80s. And so um, that gave me pause for a second. But um, 
Also, my first Grateful Dead tape ever was Richmond, Virginia, 11185, I think. And uh, I just always have had an affection for that year. I totally hear what David's saying about it. But I love the grizzled quality of that year. Um, it's a little, it has a garagey edge to it all over. And also the, the set lists in that year were so unpredictable. Um, I don't know what was going on in 85, but it was just like, you know, like a classic example is uh, in um, Ventura, they like opened the first set with uh, One More Saturday Night into Fire on the Mountain, you know, just shit like that. Shit like that was happening all year long and they brought back some cool stuff like that's it for the other one and, uh, or cryptical envelopment rather so there you go going back to dark star el paso has gratefully yours ever done that and do you guys have any shows coming up we have not done that particular transition you mean we have not done that um no i think since i've been in the band we've only done dark star once um we tend to veer more towards songs that are reliable dancers, you know, people can get down to. I would love to, you know, indulge more experimentally, but it's just not the reality of the kind of venues we're playing and stuff. And yes, we have a lot of shows coming up. We're doing, um, this weekend, we're playing in Danbury, Connecticut on Saturday at some Sugar Hill Tap Room, it's called. And then on Sunday, we're playing a cruise uh called the dutch apple cruise in albany which is a really fun gig it just tools around for a couple hours out on the uh, river and there's still some tickets left for that i think well garen you're getting a 50 dollars rei gift card we appreciate you uh being on as always before you let him go i have to disclose my uh relationship with garen benfield I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to be in a position of judging anything because I would have been de definitely con considered biased in his favor. We've been friends for, I don't know, 20 some years. We, we're, we've performed together a number of times on both coasts and we're, we share an affinity for looping and the Grateful Dead. And so uh, I'm a big fan of his stuff. And I, I just, I need to tell you that. Plus, you know, just the fact that we're friends, I, I wanted to acknowledge and say, it's nice to see you, man. Yeah, you too. You too. Let's play again sometime soon. Yeah, because we will go into the weeds. We'll do Dark Star together for 20 minutes because we both like we like doing that. Yep. When you guys play together, do you both play lead or do you both play just together? That, that's a, an oversimplification of how music works. Karen's so. <laughs> <laughs> explained music, that to you uh, Well, David Crosby called this music electronic Dixieland. And one of the things about it is that everybody is playing what might be thought of as soloing in isolation because they're playing like single notes and stuff like that. And But what's happening is that everybody is contributing little bits to a, 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 a gestalt mechanism, the fingers on a hand thing. And that's the thing, like, it, uh, like, oh man, I had a great conversation with Jay Lane back in April at the uh, at the Skull and Roses Festival in Ventura, because he just played an all star Dead Night with a bunch of DSO guys and all this stuff, and he said, "I've been playing with Weir for almost thirty years, and I've never heard anybody else's perspective on this music." It was the first time he'd ever played that music with like a proper Jerry and a proper Bobby and a proper. You know, and he and he said, "Look, you sit behind Weir, and all you hear is bop, right? Like his guitar playing is so, it's it's so much punctuation rather than like layers of stuff. 
And it was fascinating to, to see what he learned from this experience of playing the music in, a, in its canonical form. Because Weir is playing stuff that taken out of context doesn't necessarily even make a lot of sense, but it makes perfect sense in the context of what everybody is doing. And what I t tell people when I'm explaining all this shit, and I'm focusing my thoughts now because I'm going to be teaching a class on this at Stanford Continuing Education. My my way of discussing how this music works is that everybody has the power to dominate the rap and the good grace not to. Beautiful. And Jay Lane did get a shot at a classical arrangement this past year, and everyone seemed to have universal approval of his playing. He was so good. Jeez. Yeah, before I go, I'd, I'd love to like agree with that. I can't believe the transformation in Dead & Co. just with his presence. And I was, I think I might have mentioned this several weeks ago or something, but it's just like I was so upset about how all that went down and sort of the mystery behind what was going on with Billy and the way it was rolled out. And then, but musically, I was just, the influence he had in such a subtle way, it just blew me away. It really did. It reorganized the whole vibe of that band, in my opinion. It just left so much more room for groove. And someone made the point that like a lot of the BPMs are at, uh, beats per minute for someone who doesn't know that, but like we're actually, if not the same, very similar, not that far off from the ones that people were complaining about being way too slow. It's just that what you were hearing was depth of groove. I, I did hear, though, from somebody that at one point during the tour, Bobby decided to take the governor off the tempos. So, and But I think it had to do with the fact that everybody was so confident in Jay's groove. I think Mickey responded beautifully to it as well. Who's, you know, he's, he's often hard to fathom because, you know, everybody's focusing on Kreutzmann. So here we have, you know, a different dynamic and O'Teal mentioned feeling, you know, how different it felt as well. The music kept getting better and better as it went on. Yeah, it was incredible. Steve nailed the 85 wheel. What'd you hear there? Um, I really like the China Rider from that run of shows, and I particularly like, um, I don't remember if that's night or which night it was, but uh, the bombs fill drops at, at the Rider headlight are uh, otherworldly, and there's an element of his uh, equipment being overdriven. There's like a distortion thing that's very apparent at that moment, and, and I heard just a little bit of that um, during the wheel too. So the bass, Phil's bass tone was pretty specific. And also like Karen said, Brent's keyboard tone, also pretty specific. There was a whole stretch of shows in that, in that season in which Phil's bass was overdriving some device somewhere along the line. And, and I was using my sonic solutions D clicker to remove all these little farts from the beginning of notes. I went through, I spent a couple of days going through oh. that one particular show uh it was yeah it it was um there, there's probably tools now to automate cleaning that stuff up but you know 10 yeah. 15 years ago i was doing it by hand but yeah there was a period where his base something was being overdriven somewhere in the signal chain and it caused those farts at the beginning of notes well i, I mean i could see how that could be considered by some to be a, a negative but in the case of the the bombs during i know your rider i to me it's an indicator of just how uh, rabid he was, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I love those rough edges, especially coming from him. 
the china cap from the beginning of the same set by the way i'm looking at the just, oh okay uh-huh so this yeah you're, sure you're talking the china cap was the first songs of that same second set that we excerpted here oh well, there you have and then it. they played us a, a sunday night uh they played uh you know this was the middle of three nights so much for midday mellows because that china rider is ripping <laughs> well, and they would play Friday night. They would play at seven. Saturday they played at five, and Sunday they played at three. So the the time of day shifted a little bit, you know. Jeremy, another eighty-five. You had to nail it, and you did. Nice work. Yeah, how'd you discern the eighty-five? There was pretty much only one thing, and that was uh, Jerry's voice. Like I noticed, I have not met, listened to much like mid eighties, but the eighty five shows I've listened to, his voice sounds like particularly har- uh, hoarse. Even like ordering, he he's like a very slight, like almost a like Kermit the Frog thing kind of going on that I've noticed on some shows. So I could hear like from you know he it was he was just doing a harmony part, not like even a uh, a solo or like a lead vocal. But from that, it sounded pretty hoarse, and I I wasn't really I I was I I almost did eighty four, but I I said. You know, screw it. Let me go with my gut. Oh, that's that. That would have been a good guess. Voice wise, Jerry was that way in '84 and '85. It was he would have stretches of sounding that kind of choked quality, and like that, it was hard to listen to. Well, Garen, thank you again for being part of the Sherman Champions and for yeah, being such a big part of Guests of the Year. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. No, this has been really fun. Jeremy and Steve. Same situation, we're just running it back. Scores are reset, 0-0. Three more songs from David Gans. Uh, Let's play the first one. 